It's great to be together. It's great to worship God together. It's a fantastic Sunday last Sunday, baptizing eight people. I thought the I thought the testimonies were amazing, so encouraging. Um, and uh, God, you know, I just sense God's amongst us doing uh, lots of new things. In a couple of weeks' time, we're going to be launching. Uh, with Compassion, our partnership with Compassion. That's going to be really exciting on the 9th of April. So that's going to be a really exciting Sunday. So lots going on in these weeks. So um, be expectant this morning that God's going to speak to you. This morning we're going to be continuing in our series on Daniel. It's the penultimate in our series. And uh, we're looking at Daniel chapter 5. And uh, this morning is entitled, Stepping Up to the Plate. And I'm going to read uh, a bit of Daniel chapter 5, and, uh, and the bits that I don't read, because it's quite a long chapter, I'll just fill you in with a story. So here we go, Daniel chapter 5, and uh, this is what it says. King Belshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. Well, Bel- while Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring in the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought, them, so they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles and his wives and his concubines drank for them, and they drank the wine, they pr- and they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale and he was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. He calls all his uh, magicians and all those his advisors in, he says, tell me what this means. And none of them are able to do it. And uh, it panics him even more. And then the queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. Actually, she's probably the queen mother. May the king live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed. Don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Call for Daniel and he will tell you what the writing means. So the king calls for Daniel and Daniel's brought before him. And Daniel then interprets what the writing on the wall means. And this is what he says. But you, Belshazzar, his son, that's Nebuchadnezzar's son, Actually, it's not his son, it's probably his predecessor. You have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from, the temp- from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and your wives and your concubines drank from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze and iron, wood and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Meeny, meeny, tekel, parsin. Here is what these words mean. Meeny. God has numbered your days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel. 
You have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. It's a sobering, sobering, sobering story. Nebuchadnezzar has died. He's eventually succeeded by Nabonidus, the last Babylonian king. Historians tell us that this last king set up his court in Arabia, in a place called Tima, leaving his son, Belshazzar, as his viceroy in Babylon. And that's why Daniel in chapter 5 verse 7 hints that uh, uh, Belshazzar is the second highest ruler in the kingdom. Nebuchadnezzar and Belshazzar are not related. And so when the word father and son are used, it means predecessor uh, and successor. You see, this principally isn't here as a bit of historical narrative, as a bit of a story to tell us uh, particularly what happened. Rather, it's to help us see the two responses of ungodly kings to God's grace. You see, last week uh, we heard that Nebuchadnezzar humbled himself and became a worshipper of the one true God when God came and spoke directly into his life. But by contrast, Belshazzar resists God's grace, despite the writing quite literally being on the wall for him. Today, God wants to speak to us about stepping up to the plate. He's going to speak to us through the life of Daniel. Over the years, we read, uh, uh, we've read many stories about uh, men and women who stepped up to the plate in difficult situations and stood out for God. As I was uh, mulling over this, I was uh, drawn to remember I was uh, uh, Greg Haslam, who used to pastor the church here back in the days uh, of uh, back in the 80s, and uh, it was he was leading the church when they the church bought this building. And uh, Greg uh, preached a sermon back in 1983, and it was a radical sermon. He preached uh, on a Sunday morning. He preached on the church that makes God sick. And it was a a powerful word. In the evening, they stopped. For the first time, they stopped a Sunday evening uh, preach, and they prayed, crying out to God for mercy. And God moved on the church in quite a remarkable way. And in those days, the church was very, uh, would have been very uh, reformed, would have been quite traditional, didn't uh, move in gifts of the Holy Spirit. And Greg felt God calling him to bring the church into the charismatic gifts, to become uh, a fully New Testament church. And it was a difficult time. Greg stepped up to the plate, the leaders with him. And it was a, uh, many of you who were around in those days will remember what a, what a time it was. There was a high price was paid. Greg and Ruth then moved on and Greg went to lead, went, uh, went to lead Westminster Chapel in London. And uh, he paid a high price as he sought to bring Westminster Chapel into things Uh, uh, new frontiers into uh, uh, more of a a New Testament church with a plurality of elders leading it. And many of you will know that Greg is now really unwell, suffering with 
uh, uh, early signs of uh, 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 Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. I'm not sure quite what it is, but it's, he's, he's, he's really not well. But he paid a high price. He, Greg stepped up to the plate. And I would want to honor him before you this morning. But I do it because this, Daniel was a man who knew what it was to step up to the plate. Daniel's now an old man. He's about 80 years old. He's called to pronounce God's judgment on Babylon. It was no surprise because Jeremiah had prophesied that this would happen many years before. Jeremiah had prophesied that that there would be a time when the Babylonians would take uh, God's people into exile, but their day would only last for a period, 70 years. And Daniel's name actually means God is judge. This is what God had called Daniel to do, to bring his judgment on Babylon. It was a scary moment, standing before the most powerful man on earth, and he had no good news to bring. Despite this, Daniel stepped up to the plate. And here we see a foreshadowing of the gospel. Daniel shows a passing resemblance to Jesus, because God sent his son to bring grace, but ultimately, Jesus will judge the heavens and the earth. He will judge us all. We will all stand before him, Christ the judge. Daniel knew that Isaiah had prophesied in years before about a future Messiah. Daniel, uh, Isaiah prophesied around about 150 years earlier. And Isaiah had said this in Isaiah chapter 42 verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Now, Daniel was in part fulfillment of this. He was bringing God's judgment on the end of the Babylonian Empire, on King Belshazzar. But he was only a type and a shadow, a a foreshadowing of the great uh, one who was to come, the Lord Jesus Christ, who was uh, uh, the one who would bring to an end all things. Daniel points us to Jesus Christ. You see, without a Savior, we are all lost. As we consider what God is saying to us through this story, we need to do so in the light of what Jesus Christ has done, is doing, and one day will finally do. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And there are two things I want to draw out this morning. And the first is this, faithlessness in the spotlight. Faithlessness in the spotlight. The spotlight comes on and we see faithlessness abounding in the Babylonian Empire. I don't know if you've seen the film Spotlight. uh, uh, Joe and his girlfriend uh, uh, came, they were staying uh, with us some weekends ago. And I said, oh, there's a great film. I'd seen it. I said, oh, uh, uh, let's watch that. I said, you'll really enjoy it. It's called Spotlight. And if you've ever seen the film, actually, as I was watching it, I was thinking, I thought it was a great film. Actually, it's probably quite an uncomfortable film to watch in public. 
Because what it's about, it's about uh, uh, an investigative journalist, team of journalists in Boston, the Boston Globe, and they're investigating um, uh, within the church historic child abuse claims. And as the film unfolds, it, 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 it goes back to the 80s, and it, 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 historic child abuse was rife uh, in the church. And uh, the spotlight comes on, and what, what you see is unfaithfulness. Unfaithfulness. You see, I want to say to you, Daniel, following the end of chapter 4, when Nebuchadnezzar uh, gets... Be- it looks like Nebuchadnezzar comes to faith. He becomes a follower of, uh, of the one true God. Daniel, I think Daniel would have been so positive about the future. Nebuchadnezzar's come to faith. Years Daniel's been a witness to him and his, Daniel's friends. Daniel would have been so excited. What is God going to do now? What is God going to do through Nebuchadnezzar? And yet within a few years, Nebuchadnezzar's gone. He's died. His influence is lost. And the situation is far worse than it ever was before. Change wasn't the answer. No one of us should be under any illusion that political change will bring an answer to the problems of this nation and this world, whether it be Brexit, Remain or Trump. In the coming season, we may find ourselves worse off than we were before. And I want to tell you that Daniel is an encouragement to us to simply trust God, who is himself the answer. That's what we were worshipping this morning. We were worshipping the God who is the answer. You see, Belshazzar was not an impressive king. He was a second-generation Babylonian king. Everything had come to him on a plate. He had none of Nebuchadnezzar's drive, although he had plenty of his flaws. He was arrogant, he was proud, and he resisted God's grace to him. And on top of all this, he lacked any self-control. Listen to this. History tells us that the Babylonian army had been defeated by the Persians about 50 miles from Babylon a few days before this incident. The Babylonian army had been defeated by the Persians a few days before. Yet with the enemies at the gate, Belshazzar throws a party. He believes he's untouchable. The city walls were impenetrable. Reputedly, Babylon had a 20-year supply of grain. The river Euphrates ran through the city. There was going to be a constant supply of water, however long a siege went on. So Belshazzar, in his arrogance, invites a thousand nobles, his wives, his concubines, and he gets drunk. Sound familiar? Proverbs 18 verse 11 tells us, The wealth of the rich is their fortified city. They imagine it an unscalable wall. Where are we placing our security What's our security in? Is our security in stuff, in our pension, in our possessions, in our family, or is our trust in God? You see, Belshazzar is blasé about 
things that previous generations treated with respect. This second generation king had a very casual approach to the holy. Nebuchadnezzar kept the gold goblets from the Jerusalem temple in his treasury. There was a measure of respect. Belshazzar deliberately brings them out to drink from, and they're not needed. They've got plenty of things to drink from. In his drunkenness, he loses restraint. His disdain for God is exposed. He uses what was set apart for God to worship gods that are no gods. No doubt, he was drinking toasts to his own godless name. Belshazzar means, Bel, save the king. Well, let me tell you, it did no good at all. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. That's what Paul tells the Galatians. Second, what about us? Are we second generation Christians? Come from a Christian family? We have an inheritance. But do we treat the things of first importance with disdain? What about baptism? Oh, I don't need to get baptized. Being filled with the Spirit? Well, I can't be fussed with all of that. Breaking bread? That's just something we do on a Sunday morning. Worship? Give or take. Word of God? Well, I read it sometimes. Generosity? Really? Do I have to give? Is God are all in all. See, we can't rely on the faith of those that came before us. We need a faith of our own. You need a faith of your own. Proverbs 18 verse 10 says, after it's the writer's just said about the wealth of the rich is their fortified city, says this, the name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous run to it. It's a strong tower firm foundation, the storms of life. It's a safe place to stand. Will we do this? Or will we, like Belshazzar, find out too late that the writing's on the wall? Suddenly God speaks. Your days are numbered. You've been weighed and found wanting. Sometimes there's no happy ending despite God giving every opportunity to turn to him. See, Belshazzar had hardened his heart. He'd hardened his heart toward God. And in the end, God gave him over to his own hard heart. If you read Romans chapter 1, that's some of the most scary words you read. God gave them over. Belshazzar was like the rich fool in Jesus' parable. Thought he had everything. Big crop comes in. He said, well, I'll build some more barns. And, and God says, you fool, this night your soul is required of you. You see, none of us know what tomorrow holds for us. I want to encourage you, wherever you are at with God today, don't squander your inheritance. Today's a day for you to get serious with God and say, God, I want to get right with you. I want to put my trust in you. Maybe you've never given your life to Jesus Christ. Let me say, do it today. 
Let's humble ourselves before God, draw near to him, and he will draw near to us. We see faithfulness, faithlessness in the spotlight. The second thing I want us to look at is this, faithfulness in obscurity. You see, to date, Daniel's star has been on the rise. As you read through the, the book of Daniel, you read through the first chapters, uh, in every chapter you see, for Daniel and his friends, what happens is this, there is a difficult moment, and uh, they step up in the moment, and they stand up for God, and God shows up and delivers them. And then as a result of God delivering them, every time there's a promotion. Whoa, we like that, don't we? Excellent. So if I stand up for God, God shows up for me, and there's a promotion to boot. Fantastic. That's a great gospel message. We come to chapter 5. Daniel is nowhere to be seen. Nowhere to be seen. He has no prominence. He has no position. He has no power. Few people remember him. He languishes in obscurity, even though he's lost none of the God-given qualities that previously brought him to prominence. Maybe this morning, we feel we're languishing in obscurity, being overlooked. Maybe once you felt that you were on the team, but now you're on the bench. Maybe you feel you're not even on the bench. Maybe you not even in the squad. God wants to speak to us this morning about the importance of faithfulness in obscurity. See, the queen mother knows Daniel. She tells the king of his insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. That's what we read. You see, what she saw in Daniel was Christ-like qualities. You see, Isaiah, when he had been prophesying about this servant that would come, and uh, uh, we talked about earlier, was in part Daniel. It, Daniel sort of fits the bill, but he doesn't really. And he's re- it's uh, in the moment that the prophecy was talking about uh, someone in the moment, but was also looking forward to a future fulfillment, a final fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And uh, when she uses those words... It reminds us of what Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. The spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. Well, that rang true of Daniel. But yet Daniel was just a type of Christ. He was a glimpse of what Jesus would be like. Uh, Daniel was pointing to one who would come after him, one who was far greater. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And in Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah, at the first three verses, again prophesies of Jesus. But again, it's a, in part we see it fulfilled in Daniel. And he says this. This is what Isaiah says. He made my mouth like a sharpened sword. In the shadow of his hand he hid me. He made me into a polished arrow and concealed me in his quiver. He said to me, you are my servant in whom I I will display my splendor. You see, Isaiah foretold that Jesus would experience obscurity. 
God's son became a man. God's son. The son of God became a man. God in human flesh. Extraordinary. The glory of God in human form. Yet he wasn't born in a palace. He was born amongst animals. Laid in a manger, we're told. Outside an inn because there was no room for him. He grew up in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. The backwaters. The Son of God born in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. He worked as a carpenter for most of his adult life. He was a blue-collar worker. A carpenter. God's son. There was nothing in him to distinguish him, we're told. Nothing that made people look at him and made him stand out. He didn't walk around with a halo on his head and people went, wow, he'll be something one day. In fact, when Jesus came to the fore, people said, who's he? He's just, he's a, he's a carpenter's son. He's just a carpenter from that little village. Jesus knew what it was to live in obscurity. Whilst all the time knowing that God had called him to something far greater. You see, Jesus knew and Daniel learned that obscurity is God's training ground. This thread runs right through the Bible from beginning to end. We read of Joseph being given a God-given destiny. Joseph, as a young man, given a God-given destiny. And yet he spends 13 years languishing in prison as an innocent man. Moses knew he was called to lead God's people, but spent 40 years in the desert herding sheep. David knew was called to be king. And yet, he goes through a long training before it ever happens. He's out in the Judean hills looking after sheep. That's, that's where it starts off. And then he spends years being chased and hunted and hiding in obscurity. We read of Elijah the prophet who called down rain from heaven. When he prayed, the heavens stopped. Rain, the rain stopped. When he prayed again, the rain started. And yet... Uh, Elijah has to learn to trust God in a drought at a little brook where birds feed him. At the home of a widow from Zarephath, not even amongst God's people. When Saul, who was to become Paul, was called of God. He was called to bring the gospel to the Gentiles, to people like us. He needed a season of anonymity in Arabia. Obscurity is God's training ground. What about us? Maybe you feel the best days have passed you by. One time you knew you were serving God, but, but now? Once we held a key role in church life, but not any longer. Perhaps we feel we've missed the boat. And nothing, we can't see any way that anything's going to change for us. Maybe we feel insignificant. No one notices me. What can God do with me? 
Isaiah says in Isaiah 41, verse 14, don't be afraid, O worm, O little Jacob. So often we talk of ourselves in that sort of way. We're small, we're insignificant. What could God do with me? No one notices me. This is what God says. I myself will help you. See, I will make you into a threshing sledge. God takes, loves to take the insignificant, loves to take those that are in obscurity, and God loves to come and do something with them. You see, obscurity is where God works on our character. The obscurity of local government was my training ground. Years working in local government. I tell you, that is where God shaped me and worked on me for years and years before I started working for the church. Years. There were moments that I thought that's all it would ever be. I had this longing in my heart. I felt the call of God on me to preach the gospel. But there were moments where there were days when I thought, well, maybe this will never happen. No one notices me. Obscurity is God's training ground. This is what F.B. Meyer says. We must all go there sometimes, but fear not. It is the shadow of God's hand. He is leading thee. There are lessons that can only be learnt there. The photograph of his face can only be fixed in a dark chamber. But do not suppose that he has cast thee aside. Thou art still in his quiver. He has not flung thee away as a worthless thing. He is only keeping thee close till the moment comes when he can send thee most swiftly and surely on some errand in which he will be glorified. Obscurity is God's training ground. I also want you to remember that out of sight is not out of mind. F.B. Mai reminds us that we are in the shadow of his hand. He is near. He is hiding us in his quiver. Like an arrow is hidden in a quiver. That's what Isaiah says. God is hiding us in his quiver and keeping us like a sword in its scabbard, waiting for the moment to draw us into his purposes. For God knows the plans that he has for us. We remember those verses in Jeremiah 29 verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. We often use those verses and hold on to them. But I want to tell you those verses, Jeremiah promised that to a people who were facing obscurity for 70 years. He said, you will go through 70 years, but don't worry, I still have plans for you. Your obscurity, you are not out of his mind. His plans are being outworked. He is sovereignly in control. That's what we were singing about this morning. We were singing about the sovereignty of God. God is in control. He is on the throne. He is working out his purposes for your life. Even if you feel like you're forgotten, he has not forgotten you. It's not out of sight and out of mind. 
God has plans for each and every one of us. Jesus was hidden from sight until God revealed him at just the right time. There is what the New Testament calls, the Greek calls a kairos moment, a God-appointed moment for each one of us. Out of sight is not out of mind. So what about our response to God's training? What should our response be? See, Daniel, we read, he protected his heart. Proverbs 4 tells us, verse 23 tells us, protect your heart for it is the wellspring of life. Daniel protects his heart. He wasn't bitter, frustrated, overwhelmed with disappointment. You know, when we are in a place of obscurity, when we feel like we've been forgotten, so often we get frustrated, we get disappointed, we get bitter. And we allow those things to get into our heart. And actually, when we speak out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And when we speak, we speak with frustration. And so when others, uh, we see others doing what we would love to do, we start to talk, oh, well, oh, they, they're all right. They, I could... Yeah, I, they're okay, but you know, I could do better than that. You see, what comes out of your heart when you see others doing what you hope to do? Are you genuinely pleased for them? Or do you wallow in self-pity? You see, if we get this right, God guards our heart with peace. And if your heart is in turmoil in those moments... God wants to do some heart surgery on you. God wants to do some heart surgery on you. We're responsible for keeping ourselves sharp in obscurity. You see, the arrow and the sword need protecting. You see, a rusty arrowhead will fail to penetrate the mark. An arrow that hasn't been looked after will not fly true and will miss the mark. And so, that's why Isaiah talks about this arrow, be this polished arrow. The archer is, is sort of rubbing the, the shaft of the arrow down and rubbing off the impurities so that it will fly true and hit the mark when the uh, archer calls on it to fire it to its target. And so God works on us and he works on us and he shapes us and he wants to deal with our pride and our heart, our arrogance, thinking that we can do it. It's not about us, it's about him. It's about his purposes. And so God works on us and he wants us to be ready and so he wants us to submit to his discipline as he works on us in obscurity. He wants us to be those who are shaped by his hand. He wants us to be sharp. He doesn't want the sword to be rusty and blunt and so that it doesn't penetrate in the moment it's called on. He wants us to be a people of prayer. He wants us to be a people who come and pray Psalm 139 verses 23-24 every morning. Oh God, search me and try me if there is any unclean way within me. If there's anything that offends you, work on me, change me, shape me, deal with me. He doesn't want us to be people with chips on our shoulders. He wants to rub the chips off our shoulders so we fly true. So that when he sends us, we're not being sent. There's not an edge to us. 
because we'll just miss the mark. He wants us to be those who love the Word of God. There's, there's no rust on our sort. The Word of God, we love the Word of God. We believe it. We soak in it. So when God sends us, what comes out is His Word. Not what we think His Word says, but what His Word does say. See, Daniel clearly hadn't neglected his gift in obscurity. He'd fanned into flame the gift of God within him. That's what Paul tells Timothy to do. Fan into flame the gift of God within you. If you feel you're in obscurity, fan into flame the gift that God's put in you. Be salt and light. Demonstrate the love of God where God has placed you. Whenever and wherever. No one else but no, may notice, but God sees. If we submit ourselves under his mighty hand in due season, he will raise us up. Our response to God's training. So let's prepare ourselves for when opportunity knocks. You see, opportunity knocks and Daniel steps up to the plate. He was ready. He was ready for the moment. God was working out his sovereign purposes and Daniel was right there. He was ready for what God called him to do. Angela Kem was with us the other Sunday and her words were, they ring true in our ears. Are you ready, church? Are you ready? Are you ready, church, for what God wants to do? Are you preparing yourself? Are you responding to God's training? You know, many years ago, back in the year 2000, Greg Haslam prophesied over me from the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 1. I was looking at it again this morning. And this is what he said. Get yourself ready. That's what he prophesied over me. Get yourself ready. Jeremiah chapter 1 verse 17. Get yourself ready. And I want to say to you, get yourself ready. We don't know when God's going to give us opportunities. So let's make sure that we're ready. You see, the sword wins victory is close at hand. It may be the school gate. It might be that friend at the school gate, that one day you turn up and she asks you the killer question. Life isn't going well. She asks you the question and you're ready. You're ready because you've been prepared. You've been in the Word of God. You've been seeking God. Maybe it'll be in the supermarket queue. Something happens in front of you. Something happens and there's a moment. There's a moment, an opportunity. And you're ready to pray for the person in front of you maybe. Maybe a word in season. Maybe it's lunchtime at the office. And there's someone sitting at their desk and you just see it. You just see there's a moment, there's an opportunity. They look really down and you know that God's, that's your moment. Will you be ready? Will you be ready for when God calls you? Maybe it's about stepping up 
and taking leadership responsibility. Maybe it's in your community, doing something in your community. Maybe it's in work, or maybe it's in the church. But when opportunity knocks, let's not be those who shrink back. Make the most of every opportunity, we're told. Opportunity knocks. But what we see is that opposition requires obedience. Daniel could have said, thanks, but no thanks. This is not the sort of opportunity that I wanted. I mean, he doesn't get an overly warm welcome from Belshazzar. Are you Daniel, the former slave? I've heard about you. Daniel teaches us obedience. He doesn't show any deference to this guy because he is being obedient to a higher king. With Belshazzar, there are no niceties. Daniel says to him, you set yourself up against God. You didn't honor the God who holds your life in his hands. Sometimes God calls us to say it as it is. God is looking for our obedience. You see, you can't write the script for yourself. When God gives you the opportunity, when God calls you to step up to the plate, you haven't written the script. He's written the script for you. And obedience is key. To obey is better than sacrifice, we're told in the book of Samuel. But you see, in the end, obedience bears fruit. Isaiah, in Isaiah 49 verse 4, says this. At the end of the, the bit where he's talking about the, uh, the arrows and the, uh, in the quiver and the sword being hidden. It says this, But I said, this servant says, But I have labored to no purpose. I have spent my strength in vain and for nothing. Yet what is due to me is in the Lord's hand, and my reward is with my God. Humanly, it looks as if there was no success. Humanly, it looks as if Daniel hasn't had a great deal of success. Belshazzar disappears from the scene overnight. When Jesus died on the cross, it looked like he'd failed. It looked like he'd failed. And yet three days later, the stone was thrown open. Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, never to die again, looked like he'd failed. Looked like He'd labored to no purpose. He'd strength, spent his strength in vain and for nothing. And yet God had a greater plan. God brings about fruit through obedience. Faithfulness, for a time, may seem unfruitful. Faithfulness, hear that again, faithfulness for a time may seem unfruitful, but God is working out his purposes. Ultimately, faithful living reaps a harvest. God is looking for faithfulness, not success. Faithfulness in obscurity. Don't be found wanting. Don't be found wanting. Maybe today you just know that you, you just need to get your life right with God. You need to put him first. You need to respond. Maybe you've been living like uh, a, 
a second-generation Christian, relying on someone, your inheritance from your parents. Maybe you've been taking casually the things of God, and maybe today you know, today's the day I'm going to take this seriously. God, I'm going to respond to you. I'm going to respond to your grace to me. It's God's grace calling you to draw near. He's not a harsh father. He's saying, come on. I've got plans and purposes for you. Maybe this morning you feel that you're, uh, you're in obscurity. Maybe you feel that you're insignificant. Maybe you feel, I've got nothing to offer. Steve, it's all right for you to say that, Steve, standing up there preaching, but uh, what can I do? God says, no, no, no. No, 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 no. God says, I've got plans for you. I've got plans for you. I've got plans for you. I've got plans for each one of you. Will you be ready? Will you be ready? Are you ready for what God wants to do with you? Are you keeping yourself sharp? See, when God fires the arrow, he pulls the arrow out, and the arrow flies true, God never misses. Never misses. Always hits the mark. And so our responsibility is just to keep ourselves ready for when opportunity comes. Okay, I'm going to ask the musicians to come out. We're going to finish with a song. We're going to respond. But Luke, do you want to come out, Luke? And um, Luke had a, a, a prophetic word yesterday and um, do you want to bring it Luke So yesterday, um, in the meeting that we had, uh, I just f- was reminded of um, the story in Two Kings where the king at the time, Jehoash, goes to see um, Elisha, who is uh, on his deathbed. And uh, he goes to him with a real sense of urgency because uh, Elisha is about to die and he wants, he wants victory for Israel. And he, he goes to um, Elisha and he says... Um, basically, you know, help me with victory. And Elijah tells him to shoot an arrow out the window, and as the arrow goes out the window, Elijah says, that's the victory for something, I forget which army it was. And then, then he says, take the rest of the arrows, and he, he takes the arrows and he says to him, hit them on the floor. And the king hits the arrows three times. Um, and in that moment, Elisha's rebukes him and he says, you only hit the arrows three times, why didn't you do it four or five or six times? And if you had done it six times, you would have had complete domination over that enemy. But instead, because you only hit it three times, you'll only have three victories. You won't completely wipe them out. And I just feel like, for me, I think we're in this moment now where God has stuff for us and, and that there's so many of us have something in our hearts that we're desperate to see um, and we will, we will run to God and we'll say, God, I want this thing. I, I desire this thing. And then when God says, cool, well, step out. And then we just nonchalantly sort of 
hit the arrow three times instead of really giving it ourselves and our convictions don't always match our actions and I just feel like God wants us to match our actions to the convictions in our heart because there can be an emotional stirring but when it actually comes to to, to taking ground in a sense we we so often don't and we back down Um, so uh, could I just ask you all to stand for a second if that's okay because um, I, I just think if we need to do something physical does anybody else want God to do something amazing here is it yeah because I'm like well desperate for God to do something amazing like for for a long time I've been desperate for it and and I'm the worst of the people who hits the arrows three times I'm like you know God do something amazing and then my friend at work says I'm sick and I'm like cool sucks to be you um you know, and he gives me opportunity after opportunity, and I just don't. And I'm just desperate for my heart and my actions to match together. Um, um, so uh, it's a silly thing, and I, I, do, I don't quite know what to do, if I'm honest. But I just, the only thing that I can think of to do is, is, is if we just lift our hands and if we just clap and ask God for what you want. For me, I really want to see healing. That's the thing on my heart. I really desire to see healing. If you have something in your heart that you really want to see, if you want to see worship, if you want to see healing, if you want to see family being saved, whatever it is, will you just ask God, Father, will you give us what we ask for? Jesus, will you break through in this place? Father, will you break through?